Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Some of you may have noticed that uh, Pastor Terry wasn't here and, and Kyler wasn't here and um, some of our team was missing. And uh, some of you know this, but some of you may not. We've got about 40, 36, something like that. I think it's 36. Uh, who have been on retreat this weekend. And so I hope you've been joining me as we've prayed for them. Um, that uh, just God would do some incredible things. He always does uh, on this winter retreat for our, our students. And uh, I'm expecting to hear some really, really incredible stories of, of God's grace being poured out. <clears throat> when I was in the parking lot between services a little while ago, um, there were people talking about this thing, the, the big game tonight or something like that. Um, something, I don't know what, you know, who's playing? Cowboys? Did the, did somebody say that really? Did they win a game this year? I love you baby, I mean, oh my goodness. But it's, it's the Chiefs and the 49ers, you know. Um, are there any actual people in here who care? Um, about the Chief and 40. We, we've got some, uh, I mean, are you an actual Chief fan or a 49er fan? If, you, if you're an actual fan, now I'm not talking about your team didn't make it so you just got to cheer for one of these. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this is your team. You are a diehard. Raise your hand. Pardon? Chiefs. Chiefs. Okay. Okay. Couple of diehards. Couple of diehards. Most people saying Chief what? You know. Well, one of the things that, you know, there's been a lot of hype and build up and getting ready and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, th there's a lot at stake. A lot of money at stake. A lot of pride uh, at stake. Um, just, just a lot. And so th these teams, their coaches, they've been working diligently all throughout the season, but really over the past few weeks, diligently looking for what will give them the edge to win. They're just looking for, for that edge. Now, leading up to, and then really even right after, uh, I brought last week's message. For those of you who weren't here, we did a, what we kind of do annually, kind of a state of the church uh, message and kind of a vision message. And um, with it being a new decade, we kind of launched a, a vision for 2025. We talked about those. But even going into that, and then right after, I was asking the Lord, Lord Jesus, what is it that will give River Bluff the edge to carry out the mission and the vision that we would see that realized? What, what would do it? Now, I'm, I'm not a silver bullet guy. I don't think there's one thing that, you know, fixes everything. But I do know that there are sometimes unique catalytic components that can... Uh, you know, kind of catapult a movement, launch a church into ministry. And so I was just asking God, God, I want to follow up last week's message with whatever that is. So Lord, just, will, will you help me see that? And I think the Lord did. And so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're just going to read part of one verse in, in just a moment. Because what, what I've really felt like the Lord was saying is, River Bluff, if, if that vision is going to be realized, where we're reaching every man, woman, and child uh, with the gospel of Jesus, giving them multiple opportunities to respond to the grace of God through Jesus, right where they live, work, and play. If we're going to become that, that up-in-and-out church uh, that's on mission as a, a family together missionaries, uh, learning and living and growing in the gospel ourselves and then taking it to the world. For that to happen, we, we got to be real clear on this, this issue today, I think. I, I think this is one of those the, the things that would give us the edge to accomplish that. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, there were two words that the Lord kind of spoke to me and it was this, my grace my grace. His grace is what gives us the edge to be his church on mission with him. It, 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 his grace is what will give us the edge to be that church that makes disciples, that makes disciples, that change the world. It, it, it's his grace. And that verse goes on to say, it is sufficient. It, it is sufficient. Now, 
Some of you know that I've been doing this thing in ministry for a little while now, and over these uh, three and a half decades, one of the things that I've heard multiple times, you know, one of the, the beauties and privileges of getting to do what I do is people will tell you their stories, their life stories. And sometimes they're stories that start in sadness and brokenness and, and move to the glory of God being displayed. And I've lost track of the numbers of times that I've actually heard people say something like, not after what I've done. You, you tell them the story of Jesus, you tell them the gospel, you tell them what's available too. And oftentimes somebody would, would say something like, not, not after what, I, you don't know what I've done. And we have this tendency, I think, to make assumptions that God may not want anything to do with us after, after what we've done. I think of a story of a woman that I heard about who embezzled thousands of dollars in the place where she worked because she had an addiction that was hidden even to her husband. Nobody knew about it. And she was a regular church attender. She would go to church week after week. And she had this hidden secret. And she had heard sermons uh, about grace. She had read books about grace. Her small group had even studied grace. She would probably tell you she understood grace. But the problem was she underestimated the power of grace for her own life. A man confesses that after 10 years of marriage that in his first year of marriage while on a business trip he had he was unfaithful to his wife and the weight of that secret had just overwhelmed him shortly after that he had quit attending church he had stopped praying he doesn't remember how long because he made the assumption that God would not want to hear his prayers and he would tell you that he understood something about grace because he grew up in church and he might understand something about grace but he underestimates the power the majesty of God's grace a teenage girl was driven by her mom to an abortion clinic and after the procedure was over they get back in the car and the mom explains they'll never speak of this again this day she tells her daughter did not happen but you and I know that life doesn't work like that it just doesn't and so 15 years go by and it just becomes a little bit too much for her to bear. And she had strayed from church because she, every time she went in, she looked in people's eyes and she just knew they knew. She kind of took the Adam and Eve approach to facing God of just hiding and, and shame because she understand, underestimates the magnificence of God's grace for her situation. She may understand grace through an explanation, but she underestimates grace. And maybe you're here today. I don't know all your stories. Maybe you're here today and, and you grew up in church. Or, or maybe you had just enough church, you know. Maybe you were a creaster. You just showed up at Christmas and Easter. I, you know, I don't know. But even if you're a creaster, then basically what, you know, you, you heard grace. You, you would have heard the, the, the story of grace. You might be able to fill the blanks in on a message on grace before anybody gets there. You could fill the outline out. But you underestimate the power of God's grace in your life, the superiority of God's grace, because it has not just the power to forgive, but to redeem, to buy us back, not just to help us, but, but to heal us, to, to actually give you and I a new life altogether. And we don't want to miss out on how marvelous his grace is. Now, God in his word, Jesus spoke these words to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. See, when we talk about the wonder of grace, almost always its focus is on it's more powerful than the things we've done. It's more powerful than that. But there's another aspect to the, the beauty, the majesty, the wonder of grace that often gets overlooked. And, and that is that grace is more powerful. It is far superior to anything that you're going through. 
to anything that you're facing, no matter what your struggle, no matter what your pain or sorrow. And so when you study grace, uh, yes, the focus oftentimes is on the forgiveness of sin. Like if you went to Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and, and, and you'll read this. He, he says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away when he nailed it to the cross. That's great news. That's great news about grace. And if you haven't experienced that transformationally like the two people who were baptized today were declaring through their baptism, they understand a transformative power of giving their lives to Jesus Christ and trusting him to have done what he said and nailed their sins to the cross that day when he was crucified. So that they could be set free. That's what they were declaring through their baptism. They believed that uh, about grace. And some of you, some of you do. Some of you have done that. But sometimes you forget that grace is sufficient to get you through the things you never thought you could go through. Some of you in here know that though. Some of you in here have had things happen in your life and you've had God's grace that's sufficient and it sustained you. You, you. you thought you were walking in a day that you would never get to the end of that day. You didn't think you were going to make it. You knew you wouldn't make it through the next day. But you did. Why? Because of God's grace. Because His grace was enough. And suddenly, that idea, that, that teaching makes sense to you because it, it moved from an explanation to an experience. Right where you were in that, that hard place, that broken place, that place of desperation, God's grace held you up. And you know that God's grace is enough to get you through whatever we've done and whatever you're dealing with. That's an aspect of grace that so often gets overlooked. The strength that it gives. The peace that God's grace offers. I was reading an article not long ago about products that get made. And they end up having like a secondary purpose. Okay? Um, and one of, the, one of the things that was being uh, explained in this article was Rogaine. Now I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. So don't... Don't freak out or anything like that. But do you, do you know what Rogaine's original purpose was for? It was medicinal. Anybody remember? Blood pressure. It was a blood pressure medication. And so there were these men who were, you know, prescribed this blood pressure medication from their doctors. And they'd wake up in the morning and voila. Hair growth. You know? It, it, there, there, there had been this list of, you know, uh, side effects. That wasn't one of them, but finally it, it made it. And it was, it was one of those side effects that people said, hmm, not bad. Grace is a little bit like that. There, there is this primary purpose that we see the forgiveness of sin. But there is another purpose that God's grace gets us through no matter what we're facing. God's grace does that. God's grace is far superior. It's better than anything that you're going to go through. So how do you describe for people something that incredible? I mean, it's difficult. The Apostle Paul did a masterful job of giving grace explanations. But even that did not always connect to our hearts. But let's, let's look at it. In Romans chapter 5, Paul is talking about sin and the consequences. And in verse 12, he explains this this way. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. He uses this language about sin and being kind of infectious. Being like, being like a virus that we're seeing so much in, in, in the news about right now. And, and it brought all these consequences with it. Sin did. And and those consequences surround all of us today. Sometimes we, you'll hear people talk about we live in a, in a fallen world. And basically what the scripture teaches is that when sin entered the world, the world went out of sync. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that since that moment, since the fall, this, this world that all creation has been groaning. 
just groaning, waiting, waiting for that moment that Elizabeth spoke of in the middle of praise and worship about the, the day of the return of the Lord. The all of creation because of the brokenness caused by sin. But the truth is, until Jesus returns, we're still going to have things like tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes and heat waves. And, you know, we're surrounded by things that remind us of the fallenness and brokenness of sin. And those things aren't always impersonal, like weather patterns. Sometimes they get very personal. And we connect the consequences of our actions to the brokenness and fallenness. We connect our own failures because of our own choices. And Paul says, look, sin has created now in this world something that's not so great. Something that at times is really, really awful. Sometimes this world is lonely. Sometimes this world is filled with pain. And the Bible tells us in, in Genesis chapter 3, in that moment when, when all the brokenness began, there was the first prophecy. We, we talked about this weeks ago. In that moment, there was the first prophecy of a coming Savior. So it, it just corresponded together. God said, yes, I know, but Jesus is going to come. And he's going to redeem the, 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 everything. He's going to redeem from sin. He's going to restore. He's going to deliver. He's going to rescue. And so Paul says in verse 15 of Romans chapter 5, there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift, his grace. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Paul gives this wonderful, beautiful explanation of the majesty about grace. And yet, even after reading it, maybe even after studying it, maybe even after being able to recite verses about it, we don't feel it. It doesn't flow in us and through us as we, we think. Now, when, when I was trained, when, when my professors tried their darndest to train me in biblical interpretation. One of the things that they said we had to pay attention to was the genre of the writing. The kind of writing. Was it, was it an explanation or was it, was it a story of an encounter? Because you need to look at those two things just a little bit differently. And when you study grace in scripture, especially Jesus' teaching on grace, one of the things that you're going to maybe be surprised to is Jesus' teaching on grace always involved story. He unleashed story, the majesty of grace, the beauty of grace through story because story, real life encounters, real life stories capture the wonder of grace unlike explanations are capable of. The superiority, the beauty, the sovereignty, the reign of grace. And so, not only do we need to study the explanations, but we've got we've to see it working out in the real life encounters with Jesus. And, and if we're to become that church, that, 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 that light on a hill for others to see, we've got to get good at this because the truth about every one of us who follow Jesus is we leak grace. Do you know that? Your, your soul, your heart is constantly being poked and punctured by Satan. He is constantly trying to puncture the grace canister of your soul, your heart, so that grace leaks out. It leaks out of all of us. The only person who ever walked the earth that grace did not leak out of was Jesus. And that's why John was able to say what he said about Jesus. We'll look at that in a minute. But I want you to notice something. Little, little fact, you can, you can impress people with this later. When Paul taught on grace, he actually used the word grace over a hundred times in the New Testament. Paul, Paul actually used the word grace over a hundred times. When Jesus was walking on the earth teaching about the beauty and grace of God, do you know how many times Jesus used the word grace? Never in the Gospels, coming from the lips of Jesus, is it recorded that he used the word grace. The only place in Scripture where Jesus spoke the word grace was to Paul that's recorded in the verse we started with in 2 Corinthians. Jesus didn't speak the word grace because Jesus lived it. 
So when you go to the Gospels and you look at it, what you've got to be looking for when you study for grace is you've got to look for it being displayed because Jesus displays God's grace in ways explanations can't. And so some of the gospel accounts demonstrate that no matter what you've done, God's grace can cover it. Some of them demonstrate that no matter what you go through, God's grace is superior. I want you to think for a moment about the very first miracle. Remember Jesus' first miracle? What was it? Water to wine. In John chapter 2, it's recorded. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus rescues a party host. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read it and really think about it, in the big scheme of things, of all the brokenness in the world, if I was in charge of how many miracles got distributed and there was a limited amount, I really don't think I would have done the water wine thing. I mean, it was just, they just ran out of wine at a party. But this teaches me something about grace. It may not look like a big deal to me. It may not have been such a big deal to those attending. But you know who it was a big deal to? It was a big deal to the host. It was a big deal to the bride and groom. It was a big deal to Jesus' mama. Probably a relative. And we learned something that sometimes when something's a big deal to somebody else, it could be a big deal to Jesus. And maybe we start thinking that because of that, when something is a big deal to me that's not a big deal to anybody else, just maybe, just maybe it could be a big deal to Jesus. And maybe Jesus would come to my rescue as well. We also see in other places that Jesus is, is at work. And, and so we learn something about God's grace through these other encounters. In, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus encounters a leper. And he, this, this leper probably has not experienced human touch for decades. It was against the law for anybody to touch someone with leprosy. It was a punishable offense. You could be literally sent out of the city. Ex ex excommunicated, you know, voted off the island kind of stuff. Um, until it was proven that you didn't have leprosy. If you touch someone with leprosy. And so Jesus encounters this man. And Jesus sets out to heal this leper. And instead of just doing like Jesus did so many times before. Just speaking a healing took place. Sometimes Jesus wasn't even present where the, the, the sick person was. He'd just say the word and you know it would be done. But this time what does Jesus do? Jesus touches the leper. And he's healed. He didn't have to. But he does something. See, the, the healing displayed the power of God. But the touch displayed the grace of God. To say, nobody's beyond me touching you. Nobody's beyond me reaching out. In Matthew uh, chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus inviting the rejected. Jesus was a rabbi, and like every rabbi, they would have had a, he would have had a group of followers who walked closely with him, his, his disciples. And they, they would have gone everywhere that Jesus went. Typically, what rabbis did is they took applications to be their follower. And they would go through these applications. It would be like a, 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 an application season. And you would, you would submit an application to become a disciple of this well-known rabbi. And they would literally go through and look for the best of the best of the best. Because they wanted their teaching to get out there. Because then they became more prominent in status. And so they would weed through the applications. You know what Jesus didn't do? Jesus didn't take applications. Jesus extended invitation. And I'm really glad about that because if it had been application, I'd have never made it. Some of you'd have never made it. Truth is, none of us would have made it. But Jesus doesn't ask you to fill out an application. Jesus extends an invitation. And so Jesus goes to a group of fishermen. 
Now more than likely because of the way the rabbinical system worked, most every Hebrew male would have gone through rabbi school. And at some point, these guys got kicked out. They were, they were rabbi school dropouts or kicked out or something like that. And so they, they had to go apply themselves to probably the family trade. And so Jesus goes to these rejects and he gives them invitation. He says, follow me. A little bit later, Jesus goes to the most unlikely place to look for a disciple. He goes to a tax collector's booth. Now, tax collectors in that day were, they were the bottom of, of social scum pond. I mean, they were the scum on the bottom underneath the scum pond. That's just how they were thought of. And Jesus goes there. He engages a, a, a tax collector named Matthew who was a prominent tax collector, had influence with other tax collectors. And he says, I'm inviting you to be close to me, to, to follow me, to be one of my, my disciples. And we learn something about the grace of God in ways we don't get just from ex explanations. Over in John chapter 8, Jesus has been teaching early one morning. And a woman is dragged, literally dragged and thrown down in front of him at Jesus' feet. The Bible says she was caught in the very act of adultery. And those who were dragging her on their way to Jesus were picking up stones. Because the law said she should be stoned to death. Jesus comes to her rescue. Jesus stands up for her. Jesus protects this woman caught in adultery. And he says to these leaders, because these were leaders in the community that had drug her out, if any of you has no sin, you throw the first stone. Something really interesting happens. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow they know that he knows. And they start dropping rocks, baby. From the oldest, the most mature, to the least. And then Jesus is just standing there face to face with this woman alone in a very, what I believe, tender moment. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go and leave your life of sin and experience the grace of God. And we read this account and we can't believe it, but we start thinking, maybe his grace would work for me too. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus. He goes to the funeral of a friend, Lazarus. Jesus knew before he got there that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus knew that. He knew that was going to happen. But he gets there. He walks into this village, this town, and to this funeral. And people there that love Lazarus are crying. And what does Jesus do? Jesus weeps with those who are weeping. His heart is broken because of the pain that they're in. And we learn something about the grace of God there. We see something uh, about his grace. We also learn something about the grace of God over in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus is given invitation to Simon the Pharisee's home. Simon has no affection, no real affection for Jesus. He's just kind of doing his religious duty so he could be thought of as a hospitable Pharisee. He invites Jesus over probably wanting to question him and drill him. He doesn't offer to wash Jesus' feet. Now some of you are saying, well the last person who came to my house I didn't offer. This was common practice. This would be like in the south on a hot August day. You have a guest and you're offering a iced tea. This, I mean, this is how common practice this foot washing thing was. But Simon does not offer to wash his Jesus' Jesus's feet. And then, in the middle of this banquet kind of thing, this dinner, in comes this, this woman. And she, just, she washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She dries Jesus' feet with her hair. She breaks out a priceless perfume, probably her greatest possession, and she, she anoints Jesus. And Jesus captures this opportunity. It's a teachable moment. And he begins teaching. He says to those prominent leaders, those Pharisees, you don't get it. You don't, you don't, know. she understands. You guys have memorized entire books of the Old Testament. You could stand up here for hours and recite the scriptures. And yet this woman understands God's grace and mercy and love in ways you never will. 
She gets it. See, in that moment, Jesus is putting down pride and he's lifting up love. And we learn something about grace. And Jesus tells us in verse 47, he says, The one who realizes they've been forgiven much, the way that you can spot somebody who knows they've been forgiven much, they love much. They love deeply. And we start to understand something about the power of grace. It's more about an encounter, an experience, than an explanation. In Luke 23... Luke records Jesus hanging on the cross. From there he looks out at the soldiers who were crucifying him. And in verse 34 he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Jesus forgives his executioners. And if that's true of them, could maybe my rejection of Jesus be forgiven? Could maybe the times that I denied him be forgiven? Could that be true for me too? If grace is big enough to cover their stuff, overcome what they did, could that be true for me too? Because if it is, then I don't have to pretend anymore. If it is, I don't have to, 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 to live in hiddenness. I don't have to keep secrets. I don't have to deny. I can just say this is the truth about me and then I can celebrate the grace of God being poured out over that. See, stories capture grace in ways explanations can't. And because of that, I want to share some stories from our generation. We read those biblical stories and even they can feel distant. So I want to, I want to share with you some stories out of our own culture, our own generations. We've seen them recently, not long ago, in our own city. Sons and daughters, husbands and wives extending grace to Dylan Roof. We saw it this past year in a, in a Texas courtroom when uh, Brant Jean asked permission from the judge if he could hug and publicly forgive the woman who killed his brother. Went to jail because of her guilt there. It, it, it shocks people. But I want to read you just a couple of, of additional stories about grace. This one I read in People Magazine. People Magazine now recorded this years ago. It's about Elizabeth and Frank Morris. They had an 18-year-old son. His name was Ted. He was home from college on a Christmas break. One night, Ted, when he should have already been home from work, uh, his mother got a phone call and she answered and received the news that every mother dreads. On Ted's drive home, a car coming from the other direction had crossed over the median and hit him head on. Tommy Piggage was driving the other car. He had been at a party where he had gotten drunk. He would blacked out. He never even noticed Ted Morris's car coming down the other side of the road. And Ted died the next morning. A few months later, the trial took place. Elizabeth and her husband were there when Tommy pleaded innocent. The trial got delayed repeatedly. And finally, almost two years later, the trial came to a close when Tommy reached a plea bargain that allowed him to be free on a probation period. He wouldn't serve any jail time. Elizabeth and her husband Frank were enraged. Tommy was free and their son was dead. Elizabeth began to have revenge fantasies where she would dream about tracking Tommy down and killing killing him with her own hands. But Elizabeth had a problem because she had been a recipient of God's extravagant grace. And as a follower of Jesus, she knew what it was like to be on the receiving end of forgiveness. She knew she was never able to earn God's grace. She couldn't. So one day while she was praying and taking her pain to God, she had a realization. She realized that her heavenly father knew what it was like to have an innocent, only begotten son killed. And she couldn't get around the fact that it was her sin that killed God's son. And so she came to understand she had to forgive Tommy as God had forgiven her. So Elizabeth went and met with Tommy. She learned Tommy had come from a broken home and struggled with alcoholism. He needed help. And Elizabeth told him that she wanted to help. But not much longer after that moment, Tommy got drunk. He violated his parole agreement. And he was sentenced to three months in prison. And that's when Elizabeth began visiting him regularly. 
When he got out, Elizabeth and Frank Morris met him. They began building a deeper relationship with Tommy and talking to him about Jesus. And then one night, the Morrises and Tommy drove to their church where Frank Morris baptized his son's killer. The Morrises began to view Tommy as part of their family. He began attending church with them every Sunday. And afterwards, they would go to lunch together. And often, he got introduced to strangers as their son. It makes you wonder a little bit about the power of grace. This next story was on a podcast that I listened to about radical grace not long ago. And a woman was giving her testimony. She said this. She said, I grew up in church and I knew what was expected of me as a moral person. I met a married man named Bill and our relationship quickly went from friendship to much more. We made attempts to be honorable and end the affair but selfishness always seemed to prevail. We told each other that as long as we kept things a secret that he could avoid pain and I could avoid shame. But then our secret became tangible when I got pregnant. Bill made the decision to reveal the affair and pregnancy to his wife. Her name was Lisa. They had been together for eight years and though she had desperately wanted children, they had been unable to conceive. When Bill told Lisa about the affair and the pregnancy, it basically was the end of her life as she has known it. She was devastated. But after some time went by, do you know what she did? After watching her life crumbling apart all around her, one day she picked up the phone and she called me and told me that she didn't aid me. That she was praying and had chosen to forgive me. We spoke a few more times. And once she told me that she knew that she would surely go through more pain in the near future. But she was praying that somehow we could all live as family. She later asked me if she could be called Aunt Lisa by her husband's baby when it arrived. I couldn't comprehend it, she says. Even all these years later, I still can't. Who has such grace? I never imagined that such grace was even possible. Lisa gave me a glimpse of just how powerful God's grace for me was. It was more than I ever imagined. While I certainly deserved the wrath of this woman after my son was born, as strange as this may sound, a deep and loving friendship between me and Lisa began to grow. Bill didn't know Jesus and he still doesn't. But Lisa and I began to pray for him. Together we would join hands and we would pray that he would come to see the love and grace of Jesus through everything that had happened. Her grace humbles me daily. There are no words that describe what her forgiveness means to me. I guess the only word is Jesus. Her strength, her mercy, her grace, I've come to realize are only an inkling of the grace that Jesus has given me. I want to share with you one more story about grace. It's a story actually about a pastor, a worship pastor. And instead of me telling you about it, um, this took place in 2012, and this is from a, a YouTube video, and uh, I'm going to let this guy's wife uh, tell you about it. He was just a good, good husband, just always encouraging. He just had a passion and a love for people, praying for people in the produce department of the grocery store when I'm just there to get the list done. I got a phone call from a number I didn't recognize. He said he's, he's been in an accident. The EMS lady said, you know, he's going to be okay. I think he's just got a, like a broken hip. So he had the surgery and said it just couldn't have gone better. We just kind of hung out in the room, which was so nice. And so I'd gone in the bathroom to brush my teeth and just kind of get ready. And I heard him say, um, something's not right. He said, something, something's happening with my heart. It feels like the top of my head's getting ready to come off pillows started flying and people started running in and my brain just wasn't processing. So I went out in the hall just because there was no room. I just started praying. I was just didn't even know what to pray. I didn't didn't know what was happening, but I was just kind of crying out. And then the next thing I knew, the nurse came out to the door and she just had the sweetest calm look on her face and she said, "You can see him now." And I said, "Oh, good. Is he, you know, is he stable?" And and she said, "He didn't make it." them as a single mom. 
Every time I looked around, there was more people in the room that I knew. And that was so odd to me. I just can't, I could not imagine ever going into a room with a person who had just passed away in there. I came down the stairs. Um, I looked around and the whole lobby of the hospital was just filled. I want to say hundreds of people. I just remember just hearing the Lord in my mind, just real calming and saying, you can't, but I can. It's so amazing how the Lord just comes in and fills that gap. So many of the little things in my life over the last almost five years feel like they've been stunted. My relationship with the Lord and who He is has been propelled so far. My definition of grace is the power that I don't have that can only come from Him. The fact that I'm more in love with Jesus than I've ever been and that my kids have a different perspective of who He is. It's a gift that I wouldn't have had because I relied on Matt for adventure, you know? He is who He says He is, and, and that is good, and that is love. That's all we have experienced from Him. That video was produced by a company called City on a Hill uh, for a study called Grace is, is Greater. You know, we said earlier that the only time that Jesus spoke the word grace, He said... My grace is sufficient. And that word sufficient, when you break it down, literally means just enough. It, it, it's just enough. You don't think there's going to be enough. But with God's grace, there's, there's just enough. Because God's grace is superior to anything, and no matter what it is. If you've ever read... Peter's writings, the Apostle Peter's writings in First and Second Peter, one of the things you know is that Peter w was writing to Christians who were experiencing the full measure uh, of persecution. And Peter did not write to them and tell them, don't worry, it's going to get better. Peter doesn't write and say, it's going to be easier. What Peter writes to them and says, I'm writing to you because of God's grace. Look at this in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 12. My purpose in writing to you is to encourage you and assure you that the grace of God is with you no matter what happens. No matter what. No matter what you've done. No matter what's been done to you. No matter what you're going through, grace reigns over it, no matter. And because of that, we see outlined in Scripture truths. Here's one. Why should I say I can't when the Bible in Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Or why should I worry about my needs when Philippians 4.19 tells me that God will take care of all my needs from His riches and glory through Christ Jesus? Or why should I fear when in 2 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy that God has not given him a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control? And, and why should I allow Satan to control, have control over my life when, when John writes and tells me that he who is in me is greater than the one in the world? Or why should I accept defeat when the Bible says that God always leads me into victory? Or why, why should I lack wisdom when I know that Christ became wisdom from God for me and gives wisdom generously when we ask? Or why should I be depressed when I have hope and can recall to mind God's mercifulness and His faithful love that endures forever? Why should I worry and be upset when I can cast all my anxieties on Christ who cares for me? Why should, why should I ever live in bondage knowing that there is freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is? Why should I feel alone when Jesus said, He is with me always. He will never leave me or forsake me. Why should I feel as if I could be cursed or have bad luck when the Bible says that Christ rescued me from the curse and that I have received a spirit? Why should I be unhappy when, like Paul, I could learn to be content no matter what circumstances I face? Why should I feel worthless when Christ became sin for me so that I might, you might, become the righteousness of God?
Why should I feel helpless in the presence of others when I know that if God's for me, who could be against me? Why should I walk around in confusion when God is not the author of confusion but the author of peace and he gives me knowledge through his spirit who lives in me? Why should I feel like a failure when God's word says I am more than a conqueror through Christ who loves me? Why, why should I let the pressures of life bother me when I can take courage knowing that Jesus has overcome the world and all its problems? And, and grace. Marvelous grace tells us all that's true. And if grace doesn't cure your cancer, it will carry you through. And if grace does not rescue you from your circumstances, it will redeem your circumstances by working all things together for good. See, grace reigns over the diagnosis you've been given. It reigns over the abuse you've experienced. It reigns over the secrets you've kept. It, it reigns over the addictions that you've battled. Grace is bigger and more wonderful than whatever happens to you. That's the truth about the grace of God. Grace is greater than whatever you do, no matter how far you fall or how often you fail. Grace is superior to it. It's more marvelous than however many times you've relapsed or how often you've fallen. And you can, you can say to yourself, but you can't do it in the presence of grace. You could say to yourself, not after what I did. I, I crossed the line. But you can't say that honestly in the presence of the grace of God. Because grace can buy back your past. Grace can change your past. It can give you a new future because it's superior to what you've done and what has been done to you. Not because of anything you do, but because of what Jesus has done. Now you may have, you may have dropped out of this pursuing faith in Christ or you may have felt like you got kicked out or you may have been knocked down or one day locked up but the most important thing about you that matters is grace God's grace is faithful God's grace is true and because of what Jesus has done no matter how broken the pieces of your life may be God can make everything new God can put it all back together grace is powerful enough to erase your guilt Grace is big enough to cover your shame. It's real enough to heal your relationship. Strong enough to hold you when you are weak. It's sweet enough to cure a bitter heart. It's satisfying enough to deal with any heartbroken disappointment. And it's beautiful enough to fix any brokenness. Now you have may have. I don't know. Maybe you came close to giving up on grace. But it never came close to giving up on you. I don't care if it's in your marriage. I don't care if it's in a relationship. I don't care if it's in your brokenness or your addiction. See, it's no accident that you're here today. It's grace. That you're hearing this. It's the grace of God in your life because he pursues. That he would have you here right now. Because he wants to help you. He wants you to experience the full measure of his grace no matter what you've done. No matter what's been done to you. Because in his grace you can overcome. Because grace rules. It's superior. It overcomes like nothing else does. So when Jesus said, I have overcome the world, he was operating out of grace, man. He was talking about grace. He did it through grace. Because his grace is always sufficient. It's always sufficient for you and I to overcome. And here's the really cool thing about God's grace operating in your life. Is that through your life, it will help others overcome. See... There's this great story throughout the scripture of grace. We, we heard some great stories of, of people living out grace. But you have a story. You have a grace story that the world needs. Somebody in the world needs your grace story. Because God's grace operating through you can change the world. But you and I have to decide, are we going to become great grace dispensers or are we just going to hoard it? We're just going to be canisters of grace or are we going to be dispensers of grace? Grace was meant to flow from Jesus into you, through you, to others. That's God's call on our lives for those of us who have received grace. Not to consume it, but to distribute it. Let's pray.
if, if you're here this morning and you have, you've never experienced the grace of God, like the two who displayed their experience of grace and baptism, if you've never personally experienced the grace of God and you want to receive Jesus today, at the end of the service, I'm going to be down front. There'll be others at the crosses on either side of the, the auditorium. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you and walk you through a pathway of experiencing the grace of God this morning. But most of us who are here, we've experienced at some point in our life, we experienced already the forgiving power of grace. But maybe you're here today and what you need to know is that grace is stronger than whatever it is you're facing. And you just need to ask God for a grace encounter today. And so God, I pray that you would soften our hearts and that you would allow something that maybe we've learned through explanation to become real in our story today, God. That we would have an encounter with the dispenser of grace in our world, the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to be here now, to be present. Father, your children are here praying to you, seeking your grace, oh God, needing, needing a touch from you, needing a grace encounter. And so we come. We come right now. We're looking for that power of grace to overcome for us and in us and then through us. So right now, where you're at, would you just go to God to receive his grace for you? Because there's grace for you today. And would you maybe recommit yourself afresh to let the grace story of God's grace become a story that you tell, that you live out? Maybe that's the commitment you need to make to God today. As we come to this moment in our service where we come to recommit our stories, our hearts, our minds, our lives, our resources back to God. So God, we come giving you not just our tithes and offerings, but our hearts again, our lives again. God, take our stories and let them display grace like Jesus' life displayed it. Help us now as we come to worship you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.